Well, last week we launched this brand new series in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And so just to very quickly bring you up to speed, if you missed it, basically Habakkuk doesn't really like the way that God is running things. That's the bottom line. And so Habakkuk lets God know about it. Habakkuk is honest about his feelings. He's honest about his thoughts. Literally says, God, what in the world are you doing? And what we're going to do today is take a look at God's response. We're going to look at God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint. We're going to pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Probably in your Bibles, it will be headed with these words, the Lord's answer. This is God's answer to Habakkuk. Verse 5 of chapter 1. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Just a fantastic Mother's Day text. Now, in two weeks' time, we are going to look at these verses and talk about the justice of God. But really, all I want to do today is take in a simple truth here in this passage that I think is just staring starkly at us in the face. And we could very easily miss it because it is so simple and it is so very obvious. And because I reckon probably a lot of us in the room right now tend to think that there are a whole bunch of really spiritual Christians. And we are kind of like second-class Christians. And so simple truths are wasted on us Because it's hard for us to imagine, despite the fact we have this book, the Bible, on our laps right now, and this book teaches us this exact lesson over and over and over again. Yet it's hard for us to imagine that God meets everyday people like us in everyday circumstances, like the circumstances we face in life, and He does extraordinary things. We find it hard to place ourselves in this kind of a story. But that's the simple message of this passage here. God, the God who controls the whole universe, God heard Habakkuk and he answered him. God heard him. Which, if you think about it, is absolutely phenomenal. Now, I could talk to you about the the, the vast expanse of the universe, but I'd probably lose you and confuse myself as well. So, 
Let's just think about this city that we live in. That's about a million people. That's a lot of different scenarios taking place right now. That, that's a lot of different things happening all at once. If, if you watched the local news this morning or yesterday evening, you, you'd have seen that some people right now in our city are celebrating. A whole lot of other people who are in deep, deep mourning right now. Does God really see everything? Does he really zoom right into every situation, see it all and hear it all? Does he really know the intricate details of every single individual's life? Or does he just see the general sweep of what's going on? Does he only look out for the really holy people? Are, are the rest of us kind of just faces lost in the crowd? Well, the thing we see happening in this book is God hearing Habakkuk, who, by the way, isn't going, God, I love you so much. God, I trust you in every area of my life. But I've just got this really small question for you. You know, Habakkuk goes to God, God, I hate the way you're running things. God, why won't you listen to me? And yet, God hears him and responds. It's such a simple truth, but a lot of us miss it. God hears us, but for whatever reason, we just don't get it. We we don't grasp the phenomenal, the magnificent implication of this simple truth for our lives. So before we do anything else, I want to just unpack this recurring theme that we see in the Bible. Because even now, I think probably some of you are going, well, of course God answered Habakkuk. He's Habakkuk. He's got a book in the Bible named after him. I mean, God's bound to talk to him. I mean, my name's Ian, or Gary, or Barbara. That there's not a book of Ian or Gary or Barbara in the Bible. I, I don't even sound like a kind of person that God would talk to. So I want to just establish this pattern in the Bible. Well, it's a bit last time. And the example of Abraham. If you remember, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You, you, You're going to have a son, and through that son, I'm going to redeem all that went wrong in the beginning at the fall. And Abraham says, well, God, that's impossible. I mean, I'm 75, and my wife's older. We just notice how sensitive he is there. He doesn't say how old she is, just, just, just a bit older. Now, 15 years later, there is still no son. There is no heir. And so Sarah, Abraham's wife, gives Abraham probably the most awkward birthday present ever, Hagar. I mean, it's obvious you can't have a son by me, so here's Hagar. I I I bought you a slave girl. Happy birthday. Maybe you can get her pregnant. Maybe God will work like this. I mean, that's just an awkward birthday, isn't it? I mean, thank you, I think. Is this some kind of a test? Now, as the story unfolds, Hagar does get Abraham, uh, get, does give Abraham a son. She, she gets pregnant, gives birth to Ishmael. 
And then 25 years after God visited Abraham, gave him the promise that he would have descendants, Sarah, his wife, finally gets pregnant, miraculously, and gives birth to Isaac. So you've got Isaac and you've got Ishmael. And those two, they're going to separate. It's going to go horribly wrong. It's going to be a mess even to this day because when Sarah gives birth to Isaac, suddenly she has this deep disdain and hatred and jealousy for Hagar and Ishmael. So she goes to Abraham and demands that Abraham just kicks them out. Now, to understand the weight of that, you you have got to get your heads out of 2012 because to be kicked out in that point of history is not only to be ousted from a family, it's to be homeless at a level that is very, very hard for you or me to comprehend. Basically, with no kind of uh, welfare state system, it's a death sentence. And Abraham is deeply grieved by this. I mean, he, he argues with Sarah, but eventually he relents. He gives Hagar the equivalent of a bottle of water, a loaf of bread. Effectively sends her and Ishmael out to die. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 21, verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy, Ishmael, under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. First she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. Now, If you have young children, or if you've ever had young children, when they get hungry, what do they do? They scream, don't they? They make a lot of noise. And if you ever find yourself stuck in a confined space for too long with a screaming child, you will contemplate all manner of evils. Chatting my mum recently, she confessed to me that when I was a young child, I screamed so much, she was within that much of throwing me out of an upstairs window. I mean, thanks for sharing that with me, mum. I mean, uh, it's a miracle I've turned out the way I have. I don't know why she said it, but I mean, uh, screaming children kind of do strange things to your mind. So Hagar's son is starving to death. They're out of water. She puts him under a bush and goes a couple of hundred meters away to try to escape the incessant screaming. And her reasoning is, it's not good for me to watch my son die. So he's screaming. She's sobbing in the middle of nowhere. And I think the next verse is pretty spectacular. Verse verse 17, God heard the boy crying And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. And he goes on a promise there'll be 12 princes under Ishmael. He'll also become a great nation. So you've you've got this moment in time where you have the expanse of the world all of humanity, kind of across the earth. And God is aware of a young boy crying under a bush in the middle of nowhere. Now, you need to be careful. Because again, the temptation is just to brush this off and go, well, he's a Bible character. 
But the Bible characters are there to show you how God operates in a very real world. That's why the Bible is so gritty. I mean, read it sometime. Start in Genesis. It's like the Jeremy Kyle show. There's about as much dysfunction as you can fathom, and yet God continues to invade and minister and empower and bless and set people free. If you just stay in the Old Testament, in Exodus, chapters 2 and 3, Moses, he's out watching his sheep. He comes across a bush that's burning but not being consumed. It's the unburning bush. And God speaks to him and says, I have seen the affliction of my people, and get this, I have heard their cries. And Moses becomes a response to the affliction and the tears and the prayers and the cries of desperation of Israel in captivity in Egypt. It's like this kind of thing gets established. It just keeps happening again and again and again throughout the Bible. And so a little later, when Pharaoh lets Israel go after the firstborn son of every Egyptian dies and then changes his mind and sends his army out to recapture them. I mean, what do you think that Egyptian army in pursuit of Israel is feeling at that moment? Where do you think they are emotionally? I mean, just imagine, if the firstborn son of all British families dies at the hands of another nation, do you think there is anyone in the nation who is anti-war in that moment? Do you think anyone's going, well, we should just try economic sanctions against them? No, 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 they're going to be bloodthirsty, they're going to be out together. So what you see happening in the middle of Exodus is this raging Egyptian army in pursuit of the people of God whose escape route is blocked by the Red Sea. So they start crying out to God and yelling at Moses, have you led us out here to kill us? And God hears them. And he responds. He sends this wind that divides the sea. They walk through onto the other side and then he drowns Pharaoh's army. Now we read these stories, we're amazed by them, but we miss the simple truth. God hears and God answers. There are scores of other examples. There's Hannah crying out for a child. There's Solomon's request for wisdom. There's Elijah on Mount Carmel. There's Hezekiah's plea for deliverance. There's Jabez's request that God would bless him and enlarge his borders. There's Nehemiah's intercession for Jerusalem. There's Jeremiah's appeal for mercy. There's Daniel's prayer for deliverance for God's people. There's Jonah's desperate call for protection when he's been thrown into the stormy sea. I'm just going to leave you with this recurring theme that again and again and again, God hears and he responds. And it's not because people are particularly awesome. God's just very aware of what's going on in the lives of people. It's one of his character attributes. It's his omnipresence. It means he's everywhere at once. Now when this simple truth hits David in Psalm 8, it blows him away. He goes, 
when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's like David's looking at the stars. He's thinking about the expanse of the universe, as limited as his understanding would have been at that time. And he's saying, God, that you would know me, that you would care for me, that you would listen to me, that you would even be aware of me. It blows his mind. You know, I think because of our over-familiarity with this simple reality, we miss out on something of its power. That the God of the universe, the creative being that created everything, is intimately aware of, get this, you. Now, are we going to get out of this ambiguous kind of church, us, that he's aware of all of us? No, he's aware of you individually, personally, you, to the point where he knows all the days of your life before you've lived even one of them. He knows the number of hairs on your head or the hairs that are no longer on your head. He's aware of all of that. And this is such a profound truth. If we'll accept it, and just let it sink in. Now maybe you'll give me that. But you're thinking, well, yeah, I, I do believe that, but actually that's not my problem. This is missing the point for me. My problem is that God hears and answers no so often. I, I believe he answers prayer, but I just think he says no a whole lot. That's my issue. He, he doesn't answer like I want him to answer. Let me just throw two things out to you. I contend that God answers yes way more often than we think he does. I think there are a couple of reasons that a lot of the time we don't see it. First of all, I think we are very, very quick to give credit where credit doesn't completely belong. I'm trying to illustrate what I mean. Pete Walker, just nicely walking down the aisle, even as I'm about to say this. Most of you will, will know Pete. A few years ago, all by himself, he designed and built a studio in his back garden. He laid the foundations, he built the structure, put the beams in place, tiled the roof, did the electrics, puts us all to shame. Now, when Pete showed me around here's what didn't happen. I didn't gaze at his handiwork and go, wow, can I see your hammer? I mean, it must be pretty amazing. And where'd you get your saw from? I mean, all this wood you must have cut, I'd love to see that saw. No, no, that's not what happened. That's not how it works. Who gets the praise? The one who uses the tools. But what happens for us more often than not is... We'll ask God to do things. God does things through appointed means, through skilled tools. And instead of giving Him the credit, we give the credit to others. And so He answers yes, but we don't see it as a yes. We put it down to coincidence, or luck, 
or random acts of kindness from others, rather than seeing God's hand at work in it all. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Just before Christmas last year, my dad had a routine dental checkup, as a result of which the dentist sent him for further tests on his mouth at the dental hospital, as a result of which a lump was discovered behind my dad's ear. I took a biopsy there and then. It showed that he had cancer of the salivary gland. And ever since that was diagnosed, we've been praying like mad as a family for my dad's healing. Now, this last week, he had surgery. And it's looking like the cancer was successfully removed. And through the skill of the surgeons, the facial nerves that ran through the lump weren't damaged. He should probably make a full recovery. Now, it goes without saying that I'm really very thankful for the thoroughness of the people who examined him at the dental hospital. I'm very, very thankful for the skill of the surgeon. I'm incredibly thankful for the development in medicine that made all of that possible. I'm thankful for all of that. But ultimately, they were all tools in the hands of God to bring about the will of God in my dad's life. Ultimately, they're not the ones who should get all the praise. The God who used them, the God who gave them to us, is ultimately to be praised. You you don't just praise the tool, you praise the giver of the tools. Theological term for that is common grace. So, MRI machines and dentists, you might struggle with that one, but dentists as well, and surgeons and the surgeon's knife are all common grace given to us by God. They're a grace given to all mankind by a merciful God, despite the fact that man doesn't deserve them. I praise God for them. But in the end, they're merely tools. I don't just praise the tools, I I ultimately praise the giver of the tools who uses them as he sees fit. And I've got to say, I'm not disappointed because there wasn't, in my dad's case, a miraculous healing that rendered an operation unnecessary. No, he answered our prayers. Regardless of the method used to deal with the cancer, God heard us and he answered us. But I think maybe one of the reasons we don't think that God says yes is because we are very quick to ascribe praise to the common graces in our lives, rather than seeing how God works through those things. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing is, I also don't think we keep track of what we actually ask God for. And so, We just don't see how many times he actually answers yes. We're a bit like children who get a ton of stuff for Christmas, but because we didn't get the latest iPad or a pony, we're grumpy. I think that's how a lot of us end up being, because we don't keep track of the reality that God says yes to us a billion times, and we miss it each time because we've already moved on to the next thing we want him to do for us. It's like we're way too slow to acknowledge when he does answer our prayers. And on top of all of that, there's also obviously the reality of 
God's mercy to us even today for things we haven't even thought about praying for. I mean, the fact that you are alive right now is God's mercy to you. The Bible tells us that rebellion against God is the forfeiting of life. So the fact that you are breathing is God's mercy. You know, one of the things that I've learned as I struggled a bit with a bad back for the last few months, one of the things I've realized is just how very much I take for granted. It's suddenly a physical struggle just to get out of bed. I mean, it was always hard, but now it's, it's physically hard. It's hard just getting dressed. It's hard walking. It's hard carrying out my normal everyday routine. So I've got this whole new gratitude in me all of a sudden. I mean, just being able to put my socks on in the morning is the source of much thanksgiving and praise. I mean, we take so much for granted. I would encourage all of us to stop, to pause on a regular basis and just list, reflect on all the things we have that we're grateful for. So I think those are some of the reasons why maybe we think God says no so often. Very quick to give credit where credit isn't due and miss the fact God's behind it. We don't keep track of what we ask God for or what he does for us. Now, having said all of that, let me now share with you some reasons why sometimes he does say no to us. Now, just to warn you, you do need to concentrate quite hard on what I say for the next five or so minutes or else you might mishear what I'm saying. I don't want you to mishear, so just try and focus hard. I'm not going to say... I really want you to hear this, just, just, just listen. Here's why I think God doesn't always give us what we ask for. Here it is. Sometimes we get told no because of our lack of obedience. Now stick with me. I want to show you what I mean. Matthew 7 verses 7 to 11, Jesus says this famous passage. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks the door will be opened. I mean which of you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see what Jesus is setting up here? It's like our Father in heaven would say to us, look, if you have children and you give your children good things and you're pretty corrupt at heart, how much better will I be than you? The father would say, my patience is unlimited. My holiness and my kindness and my goodness 
is unlimited. So how much better as a father will I be than you? And Jesus ties this whole idea of God being a good father to the idea of asking, seeking, and knocking, and having God hear us and respond. Let me read you John 15 verse 7, because I think this is kind of the hinge in this whole deal. Jesus says, if, so it's conditional, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Now Jesus here, he's taking this idea of asking the Father for stuff, and he's making it conditional on us hearing him, sticking close to him, and obeying him. That's what he's saying here. And if you think about it, this actually makes a whole lot of sense. Because loving fathers never reward waywardness. Loving parents never reward rebellion. It's like whenever either of my sons are good, maybe spontaneously, just out of the blue, they they do something kind and thoughtful, I'm a whole lot more generous all of a sudden. Can I have a snack? Of course you can. Go to the cupboard, choose whatever you want. Have it all if you like. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) But on the rare occasion, and looking at their angelic faces right now, you'll struggle to believe this, but on the rare occasion when they're disobedient or rude or just plain obnoxious, how generous do you think I'm going to be? Please, Dad, can I have a snack? Here's some celery. I mean, (laughs) see what happens. Where there's remaining close to him, where there's obedience, there's blessing. But where there's rebellion, God, because he's a good father, isn't apt to say yes a lot. The reality is our behavior really matters. I want to give you a couple more examples because maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's not like the God I believe in. Well, here's what John says in 1 John 3. He says, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, just to say, that is all we need for our salvation. We just need to believe in Jesus, accept his work on the cross for us. Our salvation isn't dependent one bit on our performance, our work, our obedience or our goodness. Quite the opposite. I'm not talking about our salvation. I'm not talking about our right standing before God. That's all because what Jesus has done once and for all on the cross. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So let me just be blunt with you. If you're not loving others, if you're bitter, if you're 
unforgiving, if you're angry, if you're resentful, if you're jealous, if you're proud, really, you shouldn't expect to hear a whole lot of yeses from God. Let me give you another example. Then I want to make some very important clarifying statements. Here's the other example. 1 Peter 3 verse 7. Because it's Mother's Day, here's one for the husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, just so you ladies don't get upset about that one, weaker partner literally translates the word porcelain. So if I could just try and kind of pull this into the 21st century, uh, I think what Peter's saying is, don't treat your wife like one of the boys. Don't treat her like a bloke. Be considerate with your wife and treat her like porcelain. Let's leave that one there and move swiftly on. Listen to what he says next. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Get this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You get what he's saying here? If you are, as a husband, inconsiderate, and you wrong your wife, you will find yourself hindering your prayers. In other words, if you step out of obedience, you're going to hinder your praying. And then five verses later, he says this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You're putting those things together. God says, be considerate to your wife. Respect her. Honour her. Love. Encourage her. Or else, my face will be turned away from you. He's saying, my face is towards, my ears are attentive to those who live right but I'm not so attentive. I don't listen so much to the cries of those who disobey me. Now, there are two things that I am not saying here. This is important. I am not saying that we have to be perfect for God to hear our prayers. I'm not saying that. Even Jesus, when he's teaching the disciples to pray, says, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Jesus is acknowledging, you are going to fall short. We all fall short. So you don't have to be perfect, but I think you do at least have to be pursuing him. I think John 9, 31 does a great job at at clarifying this. It says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. Anyone in here a sinner? No one. Let me rephrase it. Everyone in here is a sinner. So, if that's the case, the Bible just gave us some incredibly bad news. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens 
to the godly man who does his will. Or as the ESV puts it, another version. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to them. So we're not perfect, but we are worshippers. We are trying to pursue God's will. And the Bible would say, well, if that's the case, God hears. So I'm not saying you have to be perfect for God to hear your prayers. If that was the case, none of us would be hurt. But because of the cross and because of the mercy of God, we're told to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're, we're to pursue with confidence. We're to chase after God with confidence. We're to worship with confidence. We're to pray with confidence. So just to reiterate, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. Here's the second thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that your obedience to God kind of makes you Aladdin and God the genie in the lamp. Now, let me unpack that. Everybody's comfortable with the statement, God's in control. Theological term, God is sovereign. And God's control, God's sovereignty is a huge source of comfort to us most of the time, regardless of our circumstance, because here's what it means. God knows well beyond what we can know. He also sees well beyond what we can see. He understands things that we, even on our best day, can barely see as a shadow. And through his goodness, and through his sovereignty, and through his might and his power, he governs every single aspect of our life. So sometimes we're going to get told no, because what's most glorious to God and what's actually best for us is for him to say no. So fortunately, God doesn't give us absolutely everything we want. He doesn't give us everything we ask for. And I say fortunately, because I've shared this before, when I was 13 years old, I prayed that one day Francesca Durston would marry me. And on reflection, that wouldn't have been such a great thing. I mean, there are all kinds of prayers that I prayed in my youth that I'm mighty relieved didn't get answered. But in that moment, we wanted it just so badly that we felt betrayed when we didn't get it. And yet, years later, we'll look back and go, God, thank you so much that didn't happen. That's down to God's sovereignty. He's seeing and knowing what's best for us. So he hears us and he answers. Those are profound, powerful, simple truths. If you get it, it changes how you interact with God and it changes, it transforms how you see all of life. He hears and he responds. And since that's true, let's pray to him. I want to invite you to stand. I want to give you an opportunity now to 
apply this immediately. In a moment, we're all going to bring our requests to him. Since he hears and responds, what do you need to say? I know for some of you that this is going to be slightly awkward because it's been a while since you've prayed. I think maybe one of the, the most disturbing things about our faith here in the West is that we tend to have a lot more understanding of things. We, we know stuff, yet we have a lot less passion in our pursuit of God in prayer. So he's here, right now. He can hear you. What do you want to say? What do you need? What do you want him to do for you? What do you want him to do in you? What do you want him to do in others? Maybe you're struggling to believe. Listen, the disciples struggled to believe. In fact, Peter had to say to Jesus, please help my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. I want to believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're sick. Maybe somebody you love is sick. Maybe your kids are driving you up the wall. Maybe you're in a relationship that's just incredibly painful right now. Maybe things are great. You're here today, you you love God deeply. You need to understand that's also a gift. It's also down to God's grace. Maybe all you want to say is you want to thank Him. Whatever your situation, however you feel, whatever your need, if God hears and He's here, we'd be crazy, wouldn't we, not to seize this opportunity and cry out to Him? So let's do that. On the count of three, I want us to raise our voices and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray. And I want to encourage you uh, keep praying.